Welcome to the sermon podcast of Trinity Church PCA in Collierville, Tennessee, right outside of Memphis. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, missioncollierville.org. So this morning, we're, we're going we're gonna to call a timeout because this is Reformation Sunday. This is the 504th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, but today we're going to stop and we're going to talk about what does the Reformation mean to us as a Protestant church in that tradition. And so this morning our scripture passage is from Romans chapter 1 verses 8 through 17. And the reason I have chosen this passage, we're not going to go through this verse by verse like we do in the Gospel of Mark. The reason that I have chosen this passage is Martin Luther said that this was one of the key passages, particularly verse 17, in opening his eyes and his heart to the need for reform within the church. So if you will, please stand as we read Romans chapter 1, 8 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. Verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm under under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. May God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. So last week I talked about a journey that, we, that Jesus and the disciples were undertaking on their way to Jerusalem. Well, this morning we're going to talk about a journey through the medieval period to the Renaissance. Your second journey in two weeks. And so the first stop that we're going to make on this journey is to visit with a man by the name of John Wycliffe. He lived from 1324 to 1384. A lot of historians, a lot of Protestant scholars call him the morning star of the Reformation. John Wycliffe was a man in England who rose up and spoke against the abuses of the church. He did something that was not done in that time in the history of the world. He questioned the infallibility of the Pope and indulgences. 
John Wycliffe made the comment that churches and taught that churches, their authority should derive from Scripture. This was a very profound concept that he was, that he was speaking about in this time period. Churches, their authority coming not from men, not from councils, not from the leadership of the church, but deriving specifically from the Word of God. Wycliffe also did something very significant and very important. He translated the New Testament into English. Our second stop is to meet a man by the name of John Huss. He was the minister of Bethlehem Church in Prague. He was influenced heavily by the writings of John Wycliffe. In 1409, the Pope decreed that all of Wycliffe's books should be surrendered and his doctrines revoked. What about Huss? Well, he refused to do this. And he was excommunicated as a result. And then he was called to appear before the Council of Constance. He was promised safe passage. But what happened? He was burned at the stake on July 6th, 1415. And do you know what they used as kindling for the fire? They used Wycliffe's books. They placed them at his feet because he refused to revoke these teachings and these doctrines. And they lit them, thus burning him to death. It was one of the more moving things that I have ever seen. Vicki and I visited Prague and there is a, a giant statue of John Huss in the middle of the town square. And the statue symbolizes him standing for the truth of God's Word. And then you can go around the square and you can find the X's in the pavement where they were burned as martyrs because of what they believed. So there's Wycliffe and there's Huss and there's momentum building in the church amongst the people. And something very important happened in 1436. Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press. So before these early reformers, these men who dared to speak out against the church and the abuses of the church, their teachings did not get very far because there was no way to mass produce what they were saying for the people to read and understand and know and learn. That all changed with the printing press. There was a monk in a know-nothing town called Wittenberg, Germany. A doctor of divinity. And he was studying the Word of God. And he was thinking through the teachings of the church in light of what he was reading in Scripture. Now that doesn't seem like a big deal to us because Bibles are everywhere. We can order a Bible off of Amazon and it can be at our front door tomorrow. But Martin Luther did not see a full copy of the entire Bible until he received his doctors of divinity degree. Most people in the church in the time in which he lived 
had never read the Bible. Most had never even seen the Bible. And when they went to worship, it was performed in many places around Europe in a language that they didn't even understand. And so Luther is wrestling with this. He's wrestling with the sale of indulgences which promised that people's souls would spring from purgatory and they would go to heaven if enough money was paid. And on October 31st, 1517, he had had enough. And he goes to the door and he nails the 95 thesis there. It's like a community bulletin board. And Luther was not trying to turn the world upside down. He really believed at that time that these reforms would make their way to the Pope, the head of the church. The Pope would read his protest and would realize how far the church had moved from the teachings of Scripture. That the Pope would read what Luther had to say and would institute reform throughout the Roman Catholic Church. But instead, Luther was called to the Diet of Worms in 1521. This was a religious and political gathering of the Holy Roman Empire. And as Luther goes, you know that he's thinking about Jan Hus or John Hus who was burned at the stake. He comes to the, the gathering, the political religious gathering, and they ask him to recant. Scholars and historians believe that Luther was convinced that he was a dead man walking. And so he asked for one day to think about it and pray about it. He comes back the next day and it's purported, reported that he said, it may not be exactly true, but it gets to the spirit of what Luther did. He comes before the council and he says to them, I cannot and I will not recant anything and to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. And the spark that had been lit that is called the Protestant Reformation quickly became a raging fire. And the people of Western Europe were getting into their hands the writings of of people like Martin Luther and other reformers who are pointing out the abuses of the church and they are talking about right and true doctrine and really and truly Western Europe and eventually the world in many regards was turned upside down because of the Protestant Reformation. Today is, as I said earlier, the 504th anniversary of the actions of Luther nailing those theses to the door. And so there's five things we're going to look at this morning. These are the solas of the Reformation. These are the teachings, the central teachings that come about as a result of the Protestant Reformation. Now these five teachings were not written down at that time. They came later on. But scholars and historians say that this encapsulates very well what the Reformation was all about. And so the first thing that we're going to look at this morning is Scripture alone. Scripture alone. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, and you've heard this many times before, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, 
for every good work. What the reformers were saying during the early years of the Reformation is that the Word of God is the authority of the church. That we should look to Scripture as our guide, as our rule for faith. And that we should know the Bible. That we should understand it. That we should read it. And that we should live by it. And that it should be our guide. And so Protestant churches, as a result of the Reformation, said one man is no longer going to guide us and lead us and show us the way. Councils are not going to guide and lead us and show us the way. We can look to the councils. We can look to creeds and confessions. They are important, but we will be led by the Word of God. It is true. It is powerful. It is the means by which God directs us and instructs us and challenges us. So there's no higher authority than the Bible. It's no longer the church and Scripture. It is now the Word of God. And we look to it completely. And so I'm so thankful that we belong to a tradition that says the Bible is everything. Hear what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. Now this is the modern English version. If you're not familiar with the Westminster Confession, it is our guiding theological document. It is what instructs us regarding what we believe. But the confession itself says that it is subservient to Scripture. The Word of God is supreme. So hear what the confession has to say about the Word of God. The Bible speaks authoritatively and so deserves to be believed and obeyed. This authority does not depend on the testimony of any man or church, but completely on God, its author, who is Himself true. The Bible, therefore, is to be accepted as true because it is the Word of God. And then it goes on to say, the whole purpose of God about everything pertaining to His own glory and to man's salvation, faith, and life is either explicitly stated in the Bible or may be deduced as inevitably and logically following from it. What great words. The Reformers are pointing to the Word of God and they are saying, it's all you need. That when you come to the pages of Scripture, God is speaking to you and the Holy Spirit does something that's very unbelievable. It's not just any book. That when you come to the Word of God and you engage it, you digest it, you spend time in it, the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and our souls and it illumines the Word of God. It allows us to see it in a way in which the world cannot understand it. For so many years, I just looked at the Bible as a book full of interesting stories. I believed in God. I believed in Jesus. I believed in the work of the Holy Spirit. But I saw it as a book. And then it was as I engaged theology and read the, writing, the writings of the Reformers, men like Martin Luther and John Calvin, that it helped me understand, no, 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 no. It's not just a book. It's the Word of God. But not only is it the Word of God, it's an active and alive tool that God uses in our sanctification to help us see and hear 
him like anything, unlike anything else that has ever been written in the history of humankind. And so the reformers were right. Scripture alone is a principle that is worth dying for. So the question for you this morning, it's not so much a question for me, but it's a question from Luther and from the other reformers regarding the Word of God. Does it have authority over your life? Do you submit to it? Do you live in it? Are you allowing God through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit to speak to your soul? Or is it just something that you casually reference? That would be the question the reformers would be asking if they were here this morning. Does it have authority over your life? Second point. Christ alone. The second sola. Sola means alone. Romans 3, 20 through Excuse me, Romans 3, verses 20 through 24, hear this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What Paul is saying in Romans chapter 3 is that Christ has accomplished everything for us. We do not contribute anything to our salvation. Jesus is the first and He is the last. So there was a belief and there was thinking in the time of Luther at the dawn of the Reformation where you contributed to your salvation. That thinking still exists in our world today. But what Paul is saying and what the Reformers were saying is that you cannot save yourself. It is impossible. Even your best works are sinful because of your sinful nature and because of the fallenness of humanity. And so Jesus has come, He has taken on flesh, He has walked among us, and He has accomplished our salvation. It is Christ, and it is Christ alone. There's a famous reformer, and our tradition, our theological heritage is indebted to him greatly, and his name is John Calvin, the theologian of the Protestant Reformation. He lived in Geneva, Switzerland, and ministered there. And Calvin is probably best known for codifying the beliefs and doctrines and teachings of the Protestant Reformation. He took all that was being written and said, and through his own brilliance and the gifting of God, put it in systematic form. This is what we believe as a result of the Reformation. Calvin said... Oh, this is so good. Whoever is not satisfied with Christ alone strives after something beyond absolute perfection. Raise your hands if you're guilty. I am. This guy. There have been so many times in my life where I'm working like a hamster on a wheel to save myself. 
if I'll just be good enough, if I'll just read the Bible enough, if I'll just do this, or if I do this, or in reverse, if I don't do these litany of things. And it was a blessed day. It was a glorious day when I finally understood that I'm out, I'm trying to outperform Jesus. You can't outperform Jesus. He is the definition of absolute perfection. And so the, the doctrine of in Christ alone is invaluable to our hearts and to our souls. He is sufficient for all things. He has done it. He has secured our salvation. He is perfect and we are not. And so we look to Christ and we trust in Him completely. So if Calvin and the other reformers were gathered here this morning, they would ask you, are you resting in the arms of Christ completely this day? Are you? Are you allowing Him to carry you home? Or are you somehow some way trying to run the race in your own strength. The only answer is in Christ alone. Number three, faith alone. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. This is also the Apostle Paul. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's a gift of God. See, I used to think that somehow I added something to my salvation. Well, Jesus did it all. But I place my faith in Him. How did I miss Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10? Paul is saying, even faith, even saying that I'm placed my trust in Jesus, I look to him for my salvation, even that is a gift from God. That through the work of the Holy Spirit, he's changing your heart and your mind, and he's enabling you to even say that in the first place. Because we are so dead in our sins, we don't want Jesus. We don't want the kingdom. We don't want true faith. We want to run. We love rebellion. We love selfishness. So even faith is a gift from God. He comes to us, turns us around, changes our heart, and enables us to place our faith in Christ. And so it is by faith alone. There are no good works involved in this at all, period. We receive the alien righteousness of Christ. It is imputed to us. Theologians call this the great exchange. It comes to us by a faith that God gives to us. You see, our God is merciful and loving and He's grand and wonderful and He's orchestrating everything so that we can become His children. So foolish of me to think for one second that I had anything to do with it. God forgive me. It is by faith 
alone. So again, if the reformers were gathered with us this morning, if they were standing before you, they would ask, are your souls filled with love and worship and wonder for the gift-giving God? Number four, grace alone. 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 9. Again, the Apostle Paul. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. What a beautiful relational graciousness that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What do I mean by that? It is the Father before the world began saying, these are my people and I love them and I am going to pursue them. And it's the Son coming for us when we did not deserve it. And it's the Holy Spirit coming on behalf of the Father and the Son and ministering to us and giving us eyes to see and ears to hear when we did not deserve it. It is all and completely grace alone. And it comes forth from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is Trinitarian graciousness. And the Reformers were saying that this is something that we need to understand. This is one of the five solas. It is extremely significant to understand and know that we have no part in saving ourselves. Because when we play, when we think that we play a part in it, when we think that we have something to do with it, it thus diminishes this much how great and wonderful God is and how much He should be worshipped and glorified. God deserves all the glory. He deserves all the worship. He deserves a life of dedication. We should give everything to Him and follow Him and run after Jesus because we understand what grace alone means. He did it all from first to last. We had nothing to do with it. We contribute nothing. A powerful truth of the Protestant Reformation. Hear this quote from Martin Luther. To be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. Yes. It's so hard to understand that God has done all this for us in grace alone. Because my default nature is I want to be my own God and I am very selfish. So I want something to do with all of this. And God is saying, move aside. Because my love and my grace and my mercy is perfect and it is coming to you by grace. And so when you find yourself trying to save yourself, when you find yourself trying to be really good, remember that this is a hard thing. And to step aside. And to cherish grace alone.
So if Luther and again the reformers were gathered here this morning before us, they wouldn't ask a question. What they would say is, run to this doctrine, hold on to it tightly with both hands, and know that it is Jesus who has done the hardest thing. And then the final sola is the glory of God alone. That when you think about grace alone and faith alone and Christ alone, it leads you to say that God above all else is worth the worship and the glory of our hearts and our souls, our very being. The doctrines of the Reformation help us to understand who God is and all that He has done for us. And we stand in amazement. Trinity, this table that is set before you this morning is to cause you to stand in amazement. Because your gracious and loving God has given you Christ, His body, and is giving you King Jesus, His blood, in order to save you and to redeem you. So even seeing this table this morning should cause worship to well up in your heart. It should cause you to give God all the glory as you come forward as believers in Christ, as God strengthens you through these means of grace and reminds you of what the body and the blood does for you. This is the table that has been set before you this morning. This is the Lord's table. This is an appetizer that we partake of and one day we will sit down with our Savior at His banquet table and we will feast with Him forevermore.